I just wanted to let you know as we turn to Genesis chapter 10 this evening, Sunday nights we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, that uh, we ran out of the uh, prophecy uh, conference flyers uh, uh, series coming up uh, this morning uh, during second service and then also out of the flyers related to the Mercy Me concert uh, coming up in uh, Turlock at the end of the month uh, and so there is a stock of those now uh, for you for your own uh, information and then also uh, for inviting others uh, out at the information counter uh, after the service uh, this evening. In chapter 10 of uh, the book of Genesis, we have what is called the uh, kind of the roll call of, of the nations. And uh, we're told in verse 1, this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah. And the three sons of Noah are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. Every single one of us in this room is a descendant of one of those uh, three sons of Noah. Uh, and as we would go through the genealogy tonight that kind of unfolds from each one of their lives, uh, you might be able to make an educated guess, uh, not only from you know what country your ancient country was before you came to the United States, unless you're Native American, but be able to trace yourself all the way back uh, to one of the sons of of, uh, of Noah. This uh, genealogy that's given in uh, chapter 10 follows the explanation for it uh, follows in Genesis chapter 11 because the nations and the nationalities of the world uh, flowed out of the event that's recorded in chapter 11 and that is the Tower of Babel. So we live in a world that is filled with many, many nationalities. It's filled with many, many nations. And now God gives us the uh, historical record for the origin of nations and nationalities uh, in the world. Now, uh, one of the things that can happen to us uh, as uh, Americans uh, or even as Westerners when we hit genealogies in the Bible is to uh, hurry through them as quickly as we can. And I have no intent on bogging down uh, unduly in the, in the genealogy here tonight. But it's important for us to understand that most of the rest of the world does not view genealogies the way that we do, as something to hurry through. We live in a very individualistic culture in the United States of, of America, a very independent culture in the United States of America, where you as an individual person uh, maybe unlike anywhere else in the world are able to rise up uh, to places within this country to success to making a name for yourself and this kind of thing uh, independent of your family lineage uh, your family history. We tend in this culture, uh, not perfectly, but more than much of the rest of the world, to view individuals as individuals. For instance, if I were to meet somebody at Starbucks or some kind of a social place, and I were to want to get to know a little bit more about you, one of the first questions that an American will ask of another American or really anyone else that they meet is what do you do for a living because so much of our identity is tied into what we do for a living in the Middle East it's entirely different uh, no middle most Middle Eastern countries and certainly uh, Islamic uh, uh, countries you would not uh, ventured, uh, you would never ask that question because it wouldn't give you the kind of revelation they would be looking for to try and understand you as a person. Their opening question would be, who is your father? What is your lineage? And then conclusions would be brought to bear related to you from your blood lineage, from your family, and from your tribe. That's why uh, we face some difficulty uh, in the West and even here in the United States of America when uh, we endeavor to establish uh, democracies in the Middle East. I'm not saying that an effort shouldn't be made to do that, 
But as Americans and in the West, we prize a democracy, the value of the individual, the individual identity. We prize this thing above all other things almost. Uh, certainly above who our families are and this kind of thing in terms of, of the tribe or whatever it is that we come from. We esteem that kind of thing uh, highest very often. Uh, in the Middle East, it's much further down the list. The most important thing is loyalty to family. It is loyalty to tribe, even more than loyalty to a country. And that is why when there are wars that go on, Historically in the Middle East and the UN, their colonizing nations then established these arbitrary borders that just cut right across tribes and families and then now expect these people to live loyalty to some, uh, loyally to some superimposed uh, geographical boundary over a greater loyalty to family. It's not going to happen. There is a, it is a different way of thinking. And, and so the genealogies, very, very important to much of the world, important to us because uh, always, at least uh, by virtue of the fact that it's found in the Word of God. And the sons of Japheth, one of the uh, three sons of Noah, now uh, the Holy Spirit begins to lay out these particular uh, sons. The direct sons from him were Gomer, Magog, uh, Madai, uh, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. Gomer is what is modern-day uh, eastern Turkey today. Magog in, in ancient times referred to the nation immediately to the north of the Caucasus Mountains, which would be um, modern-day Russia. So you look and you say Turkey. Turkey is not an, uh, an Arab country. It is an Islamic country, uh, but Turks do not consider themselves Arab. They are descendants of uh, Japheth. Uh, then there is uh, Madai, which refers refers to uh, the Medes uh, and, and the region of modern-day Iran, Javan, which is an ancient name for what we know today as Greece or the Greeks, Tubal and Meshech there in verse 2, uh, were military states located to the far north of Israel, to the north of the Caucasus Mountains. Again, modern-day uh, Russia, Tyrus, seems to uh, refer to a seafaring people located in the Aegean Sea and in, in, uh, uh, on the Aegean Sea in northern Greece. Then notice in verse 3, the second generation uh, of uh, Japheth uh, through one of his sons, Gomer, and uh, uh, modern-day eastern Turkey, so uh, in western part of Armenia. Uh, one of the sons' name was Ashkenaz, uh, referring to the ancient Scythians, again referring to people that be, lived to the north of the Black Sea at that time. Uh, Ripfath, uh, located in, to the north of Israel. Togarma, uh, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, the second generation uh, through Japheth, uh, through Javan, uh, was e uh, Elisha. Uh, and these people uh, are, come from what is modern-day Cyprus, Tarshish, which probably refers to uh, the furthest extreme of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, perhaps modern-day uh, Spain, the western limit uh, end, end of the Mediterranean Sea. Then Kittim, uh, these people also dwelt on Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, in ancient times, uh, Dodanim, uh, and uh, they may have lived in a portion of what is modern-day Greece. Now we're told there in verse 5 that from these coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his own language, further explanation comes in chapter 11 related to this, according to their families and according to their nations. So this spreading out of the people uh, out into the totality of the world follows the, uh, the entire dispersion that occurs at the Tower of, of Babel. So uh, it's believed that the descendants of, of Japheth are the Caucasian people of Europe and Russia and the northern uh, Mediterranean Sea area, all descendants of Japheth. And many scholars, if not most scholars, believe that Orientals also descended from Japheth uh, as well. In verse 6, he moves on then to the sons of Ham, the second son of uh, 
um, uh, Noah. Kind of funny to have a guy named Ham, isn't it? This is weird anyway, but uh, you've got to deal with it. So the sons of Ham, verse 6, were Cush, uh, Cush uh, Mitzrayim, Put, and uh, Canaan. In Cush uh, is modern-day southern Egypt. Uh, it also includes modern-day uh, northern Ethiopia and the northern Sudan. Uh, Misraim uh, refers to its ancient name for Egypt. Put refers to modern-day Libya. Uh, Canaan refers to modern-day Israel. But the Canaanites are later going to be displaced by the Jews in the land of Canaan uh, because of, of their sins. So when it talks about uh, the Canaanites or Canaan, descendants of Canaan, not talking about Jews. They come from the line of Shem, not from the line of Ham. Then the second generation, verse 7, through uh, Cush is uh, Seba, uh, verse 7 there, uh, which refers to a portion of northern Egypt today. Uh, Havilah, which refers to uh, modern northern Arabia. Uh, Sabta, which is uh, Arabia, modern-day Saudi Arabia on the, the western shore of the Persian Gulf. Uh, Ramah, uh, which is also all of these uh, next handful here, next four, all parts of modern Saudi Arabia. Ra- Ra'ama, uh, Sabteka, um, and then the subsequent generations through Ra'ama, uh, Sheba, and Dedan, all parts of modern Saudi Arabia. So if you were uh, living in Saudi Arabia, and the population made lots of moves between this particular time in human history and now, and entire families and tribes have moved subsequently since that, but this would be of great interest to you to know that we are descendants of Ham. Another descendant uh, uh, of Cush is listed there in verse 8, a man by the name of Nimrod. He begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth, uh, quite a leader, very dominant, kind of charismatic, strong uh, uh, leader in, in that world. And he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty uh, hunter before the Lord. So he, he is, um, his hunting ability, his strength, his power, his leadership were, was kind of a proverb in the ancient world. The problem is, is that he's ungodly. And uh, ultimately in chapter 11, I know we're going to do a lot in chapter 11, aren't we tonight? But in chapter 11, he leads the population of the world in a rebellion uh, against God. So he's a very strong leader, but he just leads people in, in the wrong directions. And in the beginning, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Here are the cities in, in, that he built in the land of uh, Shinar, Babel, uh, Erech, uh, Achad, uh, Kalna, and then the cities, verse 11 and 12, that he built in Assyria, Nineveh, some of these cities we re- or, or kingdoms and, and ancient cities we, we recognize today, uh, Rehoboth, verse 11, Ur, uh, Kala, uh, Reason, and, uh, and then in verse 13, uh, the writer then records the subsequent generations uh, uh, from Ham through uh, Misraim, which is ancient Egypt. And so this population settled in Egypt, but then continued to spread out and dominate other parts of the world. Verse 13, uh, Ludim, uh, Anamim, uh, Lehabim, uh, Tohim, Pathrashim, Sim, Kaluhum. Well, there was a change there on that, and uh, for that, we're very, very thankful. Now, from this uh, Kashluhum uh, came the Philistines and, uh, and the Kaphtorim, which uh, they were descent, they uh, settled in the island of Crete. Then the subsequent generations, verse 15, through Canaan. Uh, uh, Sidon was his firstborn, verse 15, and Sidon became a, a, a predominant city of the Phoenician uh, kind of empire and, and uh, civilization. Then Heth, and, uh, and then verse 16 of, of great interest to us biblically, uh, the Jebusites uh, were descendants of Canaan. Remember, uh, perhaps, and we'll get to it in about 45 years, but when, uh, well, sooner than that. But uh, when David came into the land and uh, became king, that uh, he ultimately made the city of Jerusalem his capital. But before it became his capital and became called 
Jerusalem. It was called Jebus. It was the capital of the Jebusites. And, uh, and, and so that was conquered and then, and then became the capital of uh, the nation of Israel. Verse 16, uh, the Amorite located in modern day uh, Jordan and Syria. And then the remainder of the list, 16 through 18, these are all uh, ancient peoples that were uh, centered in Lebanon in those days. The Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, the Sinite, the Ar. Uh, Arvadite, uh, the Zemurite, and the Ham uh, Aphite. And then in verse 18, we're, we're told that afterwards the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. Again, a reference to um, the, uh, probably to the Tower of Babel. So the descendants of Ham, uh, as the record gives here, uh, would be those that populated uh, North Africa on the Mediterranean Sea, then into Arabia, parts of Iran, and uh, Jordan, and Syria, and uh, then uh, Lebanon. And then notice in verse 21 we have the sons of Shem, and it is through Shem uh, that the Jews descend. And so God is kind of telescoping this thing down uh, till he gets to just who he's going to focus on, uh, and he's going to even uh, telescope down from the descendants of Shem down into Abraham in, in just a chapter or two, because that's where the story is going to focus the rest of the way, because it's going to be through Abraham that the Messiah comes into the world. And so uh, here the sons of Shem, uh, 26 descendants of Shem are listed. There is Elam in verse 22, and that refers to uh, portions of Persia, Babylonia, uh, Iran. Asher uh, was an area of ancient Assyria. Uh, Arfaxad, uh, also Assyria. Lud, also referring to the regions of, uh, of, of Assyria. Uh, Aram, those sandwiches. Those are so good. And uh, I don't know where they came from, but uh, makes you think about it, doesn't it? If everybody had dinner. But this the, uh, Aram refers to the, uh, what is modern-day Syria, Mesopotamia. And then the second generation, verse 23, through um, Aram was Uz, Hul, Gether, and uh, Mash. And then the second generation through uh, Arphaxad, uh, verse 24, was uh, Salah, and Salah begot Eber. And it's believed, you might circle that in your mind or even in your Bible, it is believed that Eber is the ancient name that, would, that um, the, the name Hebrew would ultimately uh, derive itself uh, from. Notice in verse 25, uh, we have a listing of Eber's two sons, uh, Peleg and Joktan, and, uh, and we're told there in, in verse 25 that uh, for in his days, that is of Peleg, his days the earth was divided and his brother's name was Joktan. So during the time of uh, Peleg, uh, five generations away uh, from the time of the flood, it appears the dispersion at the Tower of Babel um, uh, occurred. And then um, uh, he goes on in verse 26 and lists the descendants of Joktan, and uh, most of these lived in, in the Arabian uh, Peninsula, and uh, so uh, Alman Adab, uh, Shilef, uh, Mazar, uh, Mazar Maveth, very good, uh, Jera, and then uh, Hadaram, Uzul, uh, Dikla, uh, Ob Obal, uh, Abimiel, Sheba, Ofer, Havilah, and uh, Jabab. And then in verse 30, the borders are given uh, of the descendants uh, of Shem, where we are told, um, let's see, I'm, I'm too far here, where we are told, and their dwelling place was from Misha as you go south uh, towards Sephar to the mountains of the east. And then in verse 31, we have a recap. Then the sons uh, of of Shem, uh, according to their families, according to their language, in their lands, according to their nations. And so Shem was the father of uh, the Jews, and uh, the Jews are descendant from the lineage of Shem, and uh, also many of the Arab uh, races are 
uh, descendants of Shem. That's why sometimes when you go to Israel and uh, you'll have a, typically have a Jewish uh, guide uh, while you're touring Israel, and most of the vendors are, um, uh, they are uh, Arab. And uh, so they're always trying to break into kind of what's going on there spiritually to sell their wares. Most often our guide is a gentleman by the name of Neftali. And uh, they'll always call out, Cousin Neftali, Cousin Neftali, you know, and uh, to, because of, of the relationship between the uh, Arabs and, and, and the uh, Jews uh, biblically in an attempt to kind of sell their wares to the group. And so it's always nice to see when those folks can kid with one another and uh, and they do and these are we're told in verse 32 were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations in their nations and from these the nations were divided on the earth after the flood so how did nations and nationalities occur well here's the record for it in uh, Genesis chapter 10 now in Genesis chapter 11 God answers for us a lot of questions but one of the questions that he answers in this chapter is where in the world did language come from uh, did they start like uh, language schools, you know, uh, get, give you German tapes to learn in 30 days in your car or whatever? No, they, you have the three sons, descendants of Noah and all. Obviously, they all spoke the same language, English, right? <laughs> what language did they speak? We don't know what they speak. What, when, when we all stand before the throne of God as Christians in heaven on that glassy sea you know uh, singing praises to him you think it'll be English I know it won't be French but I, I doubt it'll be English too it's probably gonna be Hebrew so I don't know a lot about Hebrew but I'll uh, maybe I'll learn it there I don't know what the language will be but everybody did begin speaking one language so why are they all of these languages in the world and wouldn't it be a lot more efficient if God had just allowed everyone to speak the same language to be unified with the same language why would he uh, bring all of these languages into the human condition because it is unsafe for man as he's going to show here in his fallen condition to be that united because if we could unite as as one language would allow us to unite we would use that unification to lead a worldwide rebellion against God and uh, that's exactly what they do in in this chapter so the origin of language here is the historical uh, account now the whole earth had one language and one speech at that time and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of uh, Shinar and they dwelt there so at this time everyone speaks the same language uh, there's five generations separated from the flood there's a very significant population on the world at this time and they move in mass uh, to the plain of, of Shinar here and they set up camp there and they really knew how to pick out a good location uh, because this was right there in between the Tigris and Euphrates River very very fruitle, uh, fertile and, uh, and well watered uh, valley there they, they pick this place and they, they settle in there and it isn't long before they discover that there is everything that's needed uh, for construction and uh, and so we're told that they said to one another come let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly and they had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar so you've got building material and then the means to ad adhere these bricks together all right there uh, in that area it's interesting historically that um, uh, way 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 back and I forget which one of the oil barons it was but he was uh, reading in the scriptures and it was either here or related to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and he read about the asphalt he read about the tar pitches uh, 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 the tar pitch that was located there and he knew that is a, a derivative of oil 
and so proceeded to go over there and sink wells uh, as, as a result of that from the historical record of, of the Bible. Uh, they weren't using it to run cars in those days. They were using it as a means of cementing uh, bricks together. And they said, uh, this great mass of people, come let us build, uh, and, and it's important to know, come let us, you know, it's very man-centered what they're doing here, build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And, uh, and so they, they are concerned that they're going to be uh, scattered uh, all around the uh, face of of the whole earth and uh, so this is why they unite together now and and they're going to uh, build this building and and uh, kind of uh, build their lives um, around it now don't imagine that even these ancient peoples were uh, ever thought that they could build a building that would go from you know the surface of the planet all the way up uh, in into heaven. I mean, nobody would have any idea that they could do that. This was a religious building in their mind. It was a means of reaching up to uh, God, a means of approaching uh, God. So it's kind of like a church to them, misguided religion, but it was a religious building, a religious structure that they were putting together, kind of like uh, the ziggurats that uh, uh, would become, uh, you know, very, very, uh, common uh, under the Babylonian uh, religion complete with the zodiac up on the upper part of the ziggurats and, it was, and, and they, they used this, these things as a means of looking at the stars and trying to determine uh, the will of God the creator of these stars and all so it's, it's, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a building for, for worship their motives behind the building of this building, we're told in verse 4, was to make a name for themselves. They want to build a monument to man. So this thing is all about man. It's all man-centered. It's not about bringing glory to God or anything like that. And then the second reason that they build this is to avoid being scattered over the whole face of the earth. The problem with all of this is that the Tower of Babel was being built in defiance, direct rebellion against the commands of God. Because God had declared to Noah and to uh, his son, had commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, to bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. He was reiterating a command that God gave to Adam and Eve in uh, Genesis chapter 1, where God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So man has been given twice the command by God to fill the whole earth, not to gather in one little place in defiance of his command, but to spread out now and fill uh, the whole earth. So they are determined to disobey God's commandment, and they're going to do exactly what they want to do, and that is to stick together and dwell in, in the land there. So it's disobedience to God and that's what it represents the the Tower of Babel also re represents historically all the way through to the book of Revelation historically man-made religion where man decides he is going to determine how God is to be approached how he is to be reached that that man does not have to take orders from God that God's commandments can be disregarded and that that's okay with God and that we're free to come up with our own religion our own means of approaching God our own man-made man-centered man-glorifying uh, means uh, to reach up to God establish our own religion and then somehow God, this is supposed to be acceptable to God so what they're doing here is typical of man-made religion all through the ages and that is uh, its pride the pride of man uh, I'm gonna don't tell me there's one way to God <laughs> All paths lead to God, is, is what the Babylonian religion says. You have, everybody has their own path. You think of what you want. It all leads to God. We're all worshiping the same God. That's false. There's one way that God can be approached. And, uh, 
But Babylonian religion and, and all that's come from it looks at it uh, completely different. So it's the pride of man at its highest. He's not only going to dictate what he does with his life, but now he's going to involve God, boss God around, tell God what the terms will be to, in terms of his relationship with, with man. It's just ridiculous. Where's the fear of the Lord? The third thing about the Tower of, of Babel, uh, or, or, uh, ultimately, in, 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 is that it is man-centered, and it's the exaltation of self uh, under the guise of worshiping God. And there's so much of this junk that happens even today. It makes me sick. It really does. I, I don't know how else to put it. It just makes me sick. I don't know about you, but by the time I decided to give my life to the Lord, I was pretty sick of myself and uh, pretty sick of, of, of people in terms of looking to them for hope and the meaning of life and, and this kind of thing. I didn't want some man-centered thing I was going to become a part of. I'm very happy for God to be God. And I'm very glad that He's very, very big and He's very holy and He's very awesome and, and to fall down before Him and to give Him the honor that, that He is, is due. So Babylonian religion is a religion that focuses on man. It's all centered on man though, uh, as it works out in the United States of America, though no church that, virtually no church that is uh, overtly man-centered. Hi, come here, we worship man. Uh, has any success of, of growing numerically and thus growing financially. And in religious circles, uh, apart from the Spirit of God, the bottom lines are the same as in the business world. Uh, nickels and noses, numbers and money. And uh, so what you do is you devise something that is actually the worship of man, but you're not overt about it, you're not honest about it. Uh, so what you do is outwardly you make it look like it's the worship of God in order to give it legitimacy, but you abandon that immediately at the door. And, and that's the kind of thing that, that, that this uh, babble is all about here and, and so much uh, all around us is, is, is about the worship of man and man-centered and all of it. Uh, is idolatry. So you've got this great unity based upon disobedience to God's Word, exaltation of self uh, over God, the um, development and the nurturing of selfishness in man, and then calling it the worship of God. I won't go. I mean, it just really bugs me. And then man building his own way uh, to to heaven, self-righteousness. But that, that is it. you can't have a unity that's built on those things. And uh, because God is, not just because God is going to spread and, and not allow that unity to develop, the reason that God causes the Tower of Babel and, and, and confuses their language to spread uh, them out is because what they were trying to do in their unity was more dangerous uh, to his plan to bring a savior into the world and to even the good of man uh, than the hardship that dispersing the populations through language would be. God does not, this is fascinating to me, God does not intend until Jesus Christ himself sits on the throne in Jerusalem in this world that man be unified into a one-world government. He is not for it then, he is not for it now. Because the problem is, is that we will use that unification because of the overall fallenness of mankind. That unification will be used by mankind as a whole to snuff out allegiance to God, a love for God, and lead the whole world into a rebellion against God. And just to give you an idea of the fact that that just waits in the wings for man when he gets his first chance to do it, is precisely what the Antichrist will do during the tribulation period. Uh, he will unite the whole world into a one-world government, but that government will immediately focus on wiping out any kind of 
existence of the worship of the true and the living God and then to establish man as God and all of this upon the earth. So it's fascinating. We watch man try to unify and all in these days. And I'm not saying that, you know, negotiation or ambassadors or these kinds of things aren't good to keep wars from happening uh, in, in the world. But if this thing were to ever fully unify, the same, it would be the same result as uh, thousands of, of, of years ago. It is a uh, danger, again, because of the fallenness of man. It will not be a danger when it is under the oversight of someone who is perfectly righteous. It will only be safe uh, when Jesus comes back. Now notice in verse 5 that the Lord uh, watches all of this uh, very, very carefully. He notices what's happening here. And uh, uh, he came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of, of men had built. So he's very much into architecture and uh, these things. Now he's, he's a little troubled by what he sees. And the Lord said, indeed the people are one and they all have one language and this is what they begin to do. That unity. The languages in the world keep us just disunified enough to allow God's kingdom to move forward all over the world. It keeps us unsettled in a way that's healthy for the kingdom of God. This is what they begin to do, and now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them in terms of, of evil and wrongdoing, rebellion against God. And so he said, come, let us. So again, you have a conversation, just like in Genesis chapter 1, within the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us go down and uh, there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord, so who is this let us? It's the Lord. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. So God had had commanded them to do of their own free will to obey Him, to scatter out throughout the earth, fill the earth and all. They would not do it under those terms and so he forces it now through the the confusion here by introducing this uh, these languages so you can imagine here's the confusion everybody now is instantly uh, all of these languages are introduced but you speak a language that some other people so you start shouting out help Cecil help you know what in the world is this and what you know and five people over here understand what you're saying so they come over to you and then everybody's starting to group you know based upon what's the common language that they can understand and then as they begin to group they begin to disperse then from the Tower of Babel into the different parts of the world and that historical record we looked at there in chapter uh, 10 and so before therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all of the earth so God wins one way or another we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. <laughs> and, uh, and we all understand that on some smaller level, don't we, in our, our lives and our relationship with the Lord. Then in verse 10, he moves into uh, another genealogy, focusing very much on Shem, and he's kind of telescoping down or microscoping down or whatever from the whole, this whole group of people that were descendants of Shem. He's going to bring it right down to Abraham because that's who he's going to focus on, uh, really the descendants of Abraham for the rest of the book. And this is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old, and he begot this guy. I've pronou I pronounced his name already three or four times. I just have my limit. And uh, so two years after the flood and there he is again he begot and Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters and there he is again he lived 35 years and begot Selah and uh, and after he begot Selah uh, oh my uh, Arfaxad lived 400 and see he won 400 he's in the grave historic thousands of years and he wins lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters uh, Selah lived 30 years and begot Eber 
and after he begot Eber, Salah uh, lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years, begot Peleg, and after he begot Peleg, uh, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and he begot Ru, and after he begot Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years begot Sarag, and after he begot Sarag, Ru lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Uh, Sarag uh, lived 30 years and begot Nahor, and after he begot Nahor, Sarag lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah, and after he begot Terah, uh, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. And now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram. So here we go, right on down the genealogies. Here we get uh, jackpot. Well, I shouldn't use uh, home run. Uh, here he is. Man, this gambling thing. Ugh, I just don't like it. So, but, uh, so he begot uh, Abram, and then he begot Nahor, and, uh, and then also Haran. These three were brothers and uh, sons of Terah. And this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot uh, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. And this is important for us to realize because Lot's going to play into the picture. Lot is the nephew of Abram. Abram will later be uh, renamed as Abraham, uh, the father of faith, the father of the nation uh, of, of Israel, the Jewish people. And uh, Haran uh, predeceased his father. He, decided, he died before his father, Terah, in his native land, in Ur of the Chaldees. And then Abram and Nahor took wives, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, married his niece. And the daughters of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Ishka. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And then Terah, Abram's father, took his son, Abram, and his grandson, Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law, Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldees. This is where they came from. Uh, they were uh, uh, Terah, as we're told in, in uh, the book of Joshua. He was an idolater, like his, his, uh, his descendants and his family. They were idolaters in Ur of, of the Chaldeans. And uh, they left Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan, and they, and they came uh, to Haran, and they dwelt there. And so the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now notice in verse uh, 12, very, very um, important. Now, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to uh, Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I show you. Here's the deal to try and understand a little bit about this. Apparently, the Lord, by some means of revelation, spoke to Abram while he was living in Ur of the Chaldees, uh, kind of under his father there. And Ur of the Chaldees was just a land of idolatry and idolaters. And he spoke to Abram there and said, Listen, I want you to get out of your country, get away from your family, and I want you then, second, to come to a land that I'm going to show you. And I think he probably revealed to him that it was the land of Canaan, uh, but uh, he didn't know what the land of Canaan was, or he certainly didn't know what it looked like or anything. So there's faith involved in him taking this journey. So he apparently, if you put the pieces together, it looks like he decided to obey God's voice and to leave Ur of the Chaldees, make his way to Canaan. But instead of obeying the command to leave his family in order to do this, 
and uh, to go to Canaan, he leaves with his father, he leaves with his nephew, he leaves with extended family. And the problem is, is in that patriarchal society, uh, his dad is kind of the boss still of the situation, leaves with him, they get to Haran, and uh, apparently dad says, this is as far as we're going to go on our journey to Canaan, let's settle down here. And, uh, and so they get stuck there for a number of years until Abram's father dies. And this is why this is called the wasted years. He disobeyed God's commandments. God told him there, get out of your country. He obeyed that. But he was to go all the way to Canaan. He did not obey that. He was to leave his family to do this. He did not do that. He took his family with him. God knew the influence that his family would be upon him in hindering God's call upon, upon his life. And he ends up wasting a, a very significant part uh, of, of his life because he did not obey the Lord here and, and, and leave his family and get on with what God wanted to do through, through his life. It's very interesting. We look at Jesus and, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. And we sometimes think he can never ask us to do something hard or difficult, but he can do that. And one of the hardest things that he can ask a person to do, certainly where families are as tight as they are in the Middle Eastern culture, is to call a person away from their family in order for God to work his will through them because he knows that they are unequally yoked in their family that their family does not get spiritual things like Abram does. They will be a hindrance. They will slow things down. They will become a problem in the land that he, Lot is going to be that he is bringing Abraham into. The land was for, was for Abraham, not for Lot. And yet, Lot prospers there. They begin to disputes between their, their flocks and all, and who's going to get the land, and Abram isn't going to fight over it and all. It, it, was a, it was a problem that didn't need to happen if Abram had just been obedient to the Lord. If the Lord calls you to do something, do it. Do it. If, if in the kingdom of God... Uh, I would not be standing before you today as the pastor of Calvary Chapel of Modesto if we had put this up to a family vote uh, 20-some years ago. Almost none, none of you would be able to do what God is calling you to do if it was left up to the approval of your family. And uh, so sometimes it's going to mean where I look and I say, I respect my family, I treat people with respect and all, but I must fear and obey God over everything else. Jesus, there was a, a man that uh, came uh, to him. Jesus had said to him, you know, follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Let, I'll follow you as soon as my father uh, uh, dies. And, and, and then I don't have to get the permission and that whole thing. Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Let the, the, because you're spiritually alive. There are things that only spiritually alive people can do. And you cannot be anchored by this other group. Even Jesus was so strong related to that. We're respectful toward other people. We are respectful toward our father and our mother. We are ex respectful in these ways. But I must obey what God calls me to do in the kingdom of God. And he didn't, and it led into trouble. Now notice, as he's told that the two commands, get out of your country and from your family, and then uh, uh, from your father's house. So getting out of the country also was supposed to mean a separation from uh, his, his family, unequally yoked uh, with them. And uh, the second thing was not only first get out, but then also to go to a land that I will show you the land of Canaan, as we'll see in a moment. Then he gives them three great promises, if you'll just obey these two commands. He said, I will make, number one, I will make you a great nation. 
I will bless you. And then the second uh, blessing that he promises, I will make your name great. And then the third blessing is, and you shall be a blessing. And so those were the blessings of, of being obedient to these commands. God promised to make a great nation of him. That great nation is the Jewish people, uh, the nation uh, of Israel. Second, God promises to bless Abram and specifically to make his name great. His name is great in most of the world today as the father of the Jews and as the father of, of faith. And then verses 2 and 3, God promises to make him a blessing to the entire world if he would just obey in separating and obeying God's call upon his life. And he says in verse 3, In you all of the families of the world, that is Jew and Gentile, will be blessed. You and I are blessed in this room today. The whole world is blessed today because of Abraham's obedience, as partial as it was, uh, uh, to obey the Lord. The Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 9, as he thought about the blessings that have come into the world through the Jewish people, he named the two greatest blessings that God has blessed the world with through the Jewish people. Number one, the Scriptures. The Word of God brought into the world, the Bible, Law and the Prophets, through the Jewish people. The second great blessing to all of the nations of the world, a Messiah, a Savior, a Jewish Messiah, Jewish blood in His veins, Jesus Christ our Lord. And those two great things come from the Jewish nation have made them a blessing to the whole world. Imagine where this world would be without the Word of God, without a Savior, without a Messiah. We are all blessed because of, of uh, Abraham's uh, obedience uh, here. Notice he says in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you, speaking of Abraham and his descendants, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. God will bless those that bless Abraham and his descendants, the Jewish people. He'll curse those who uh, curse him. And this blessing and cursing has been shown to be true over and over again all through history. To choose to be a blessing to the Jewish people and to the nation of Israel is one of the greatest things that an individual can do. There's no room for anti-Semitism, no room for anti-anything really, except, you know, uh, sin in, in, in the child, of, in, in a Christian toward, toward uh, the Jews. The single greatest foreign policy position that a nation can take is to be a blessing to the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. It doesn't mean you always agree with them. It doesn't mean that you co-sign anything that they do is wrong. But in general, you take and you support their right to exist and to be as, as a people and as a nation. God is not through with the Jewish people yet in His prophetic plan. And, uh, and, and so this is the greatest foreign policy position a nation can take and it is a wise country that stays on the right side of this covenant with Abraham the right side of this blessing I am convinced that it is one of the reasons uh, that God blesses our nation and any nation can know this blessing by simply being a support to the Jews and the Jewish people. Doesn't mean you don't listen to other people, doesn't mean that they're always right, doesn't mean they're always balanced and all, but a blessing to their right uh, to exist. And any nation that chooses to curse the Jews, uh, much less to seek their destruction, they're on the wrong side of this covenant and they're on the wrong side of God and they will never be successful. In, in, uh, in trying to wipe out the Jews because God will rise up on behalf of the Jewish people to actively protect them and to actively curse those that actively work against uh, them. That kind of person, that kind of people, that kind of nation has no future. It has no future blessing. 
And, and you look at every Islamic uh, enemy of the Jews, it doesn't mean every Muslim uh, hates the Jews, but every Islamic enemy of, of the Jews or any enemy, and you can look at all of that, watch it on television and these things, and you know they're on a path that is cursed. They will never prosper as a people. They will never prosper as a nation. They will never prosper as a society as long as they hold to that view. Every time they rise up to curse the Jews, God will rise up to curse them. And uh, so, very, very interesting covenant, and it's good uh, to be on the right side of it. And so Abraham, verse 4, he uh, departed as the Lord had spoken to him. So he leaves after this delay in uh, Haran, and then he begins to make his way now to Canaan. Uh, and so that's the obedient thing that he does. The problem is, is that he took Lot, his nephew, with him. Again, they're unequally yoked. Lot's all about the flesh as we're going to see. Abram's all about God and obeying God. So what, what God is going to do, he's, again, he's given Ab- he gave Abraham the easy way, and now there's the hard way. The easy way is, obey me. I know what I'm talking about. Leave your family and come do what I've called you to do. It's, I cannot do what I want to do through you uh, have, with you linked up with Lot. So God is going to have to, through certain circumstances, uh, cause Lot to be separated from Abram, but it will be a lot more powerful, uh, a lot more uh, difficult than if Abram had just obeyed God to begin with. Lot is not a spiritual uh, person. Uh, he's called righteous Lot in the New Testament, which is one of the strongest verses to speak of the grace of God in the entire New Testament. As far as I'm concerned. So Lot went with him. Abram was uh, 75 years old when he departed from Haran. You're never too old for a venture in faith. How old old before you get the Denny's discount? Anybody? What's What's the age? What is it? 60. I got a 55 back here. 55? All right, we're getting 55. The veterans know. So here, here is, uh, and, and, and these are uh, younger than that, these guys, but here, he's, he's been getting the Denny's discount for 20 years. And God calls him to change all of human history. I don't, I don't know that he views retirement the same way that do, we do. And then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, all their possessions as they that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan, and so they came to the land of Canaan. Now, don't envision in your mind, you know, three people in a donkey making their way across the desert or anything like this. This is a huge caravan. They've got servants. They've got property. They've got wealth. They've, this, is, this is a big deal as they're making their way there. And Abram... Uh, passed through uh, the land to the place of Shechem, about 30 miles north of Jerusalem, as far as the terebinth tree uh, of Morah, and the Canaanites were then in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, uh, To your descendants I will give this land. So apparently he had spoken to Abram in Ur of the Chaldees and said, identified the land that he was to go to, and that was Canaan, uh, but he didn't know what Canaan was from anywhere else in the world. Now he's known it by name. Now he knows it by sight. And God uh, uh, confirms uh, the covenant and the promise uh, with him now. This is the land, and to your descendants I will give this land. And the response of Abram to this is that he built an altar... Uh, to the Lord who appeared to him. Uh, and so he, the, and, he, and he offers a sacrifice to the Lord. Abram is a lover of God. He's going to make a super, super bonehead decision in just a verse or so. Uh, but if we just look at him and say, well, he's just a bonehead, a carnal person. He's not. And that, that's why, that's the power of the lesson. 
is that someone who really loves God this way and, and all is, is susceptible to this, this kind of thing. So he builds this altar to the Lord, worships the Lord, and, uh, and, and so he's a lover and a worshiper of God. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, so he keeps moving through the land. He pitched his tent uh, uh, with Bethel uh, on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So you notice the tent and the altar. He is a beautiful picture of Abram. Uh, he is a pilgrim in the world, spiritually making his way through the world. But he's a worshiper of God, just as the New Testament tells us we are to be. And then, uh, so again, voluntarily, he worships the Lord there in the land of Canaan. And he does so publicly. So he's in a very, very pagan Canaanite environment and he openly expresses his love for God and his worship for God here in these in these sacrifices so he's he's a really uh, good guy but really good guys and gals can do dumb things as we're going to see and so Abram uh, journeyed uh, going on still toward the south down into the Negev desert now there was a famine in the land and uh, Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. So he's come into the promised land, right in the middle. He's in God's will, isn't he? He's right in the middle of God's will, and yet there's a famine in the middle of God's will. I thought God's will was always, you know, uh, cotton candy and lazy boy sofas and this kind of stuff. But it's not. It can be difficult. And we don't want to minimize uh, the, this trial. It is, famine is, is serious then, is serious today, where you're wondering, and he's got, a, he's got a large group of people with him to keep fed. He's got a lot of responsibility here. And he looks at it, and, and this is a real, real strong pressure that's on him. Food is drying up in the land of the Canaanites. I am a stranger. I am the low person on this totem pole here in this land. But God had called him there. And God did not tell him to go to Egypt. And he, out of a motivation of fear, maybe you're looking at a situation, God has called you to do this, you know that God has called you to do and to be in the place that you're in, and things are drying up all around you, but you have no word from God to move from that place. Don't let fear move you. And that's, that's, this is the point of the passage, is the danger that fear represents, even to the father of faith, here in the circumstances. So, so he, he begins to get fearful related to it. He comes up with his own idea. I know what I'll do. I'll take everyone down into Egypt. Big problem is God never told him to do that. Now Egypt was different from the rest of, of certainly from Canaan. Canaan was dependent upon the rains, the, 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 la, the late and, and the early rains for the crops to be watered and that kind of thing. Egypt had rivers. They had uh, canal systems, irrigation systems. So uh, they were less susceptible to, to famine and there was more food there. So he decides that what, that's what we're going to to do. So God needs a little help. He obviously overlooked this. <laughs> I mean, you know, he, he's, he's been around a long time, probably had a little kind of gap there on things, you know, just missed it. And that's what I'm here for is to fill in the blanks for him. So he makes this decision now uh, to go down into Egypt. But God hadn't told him to do it, so it's disobedience, and there are going to be some problems with this. And it came to pass when he was close to entering into Egypt. He already knows there's trouble going down there. So they're just kind of making their way on the donkey, you know, him and Sarah is on the other donkey and everything, and so going down into Egypt, and he knows what the trouble is, is going to be. So he broaches the subject with her as they get close to the border. And he said to Sarah, his wife, he said, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. You are a knockout. Now she's been she's been getting the senior discount for 15 years at, at Denny's, so she must have really been something. And uh, so you are very very beautiful, and therefore it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say this is his wife, and they will kill me, uh, but they will let you live in order to then take you into a harem and become another man's property. So apparently in Egypt in ancient times, uh, adultery was looked down upon. Murder's okay. And uh, so the solution to this kind of a deal was just murder the husband, take the wife, and everything's fine. You know, I mean, it's right there in the, in the whatever book they were operating out of. And that's what he fears is going to happen. So he said, verse 13, see how complicated 
disobedience gets. I mean, it just gets complicated right away. He said, please say that you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake that I may live because of you. Sure, you may get sold into a harem, but, <laughs> you know, man's got to eat and, uh, um, and all, and I want to save my neck here on, on this kind of thing. And so say that you're my sister. So he's, he's asking her to lie. Now, to be fair with, with Abram, it's, it's only a half lie. Because we're going to see in Genesis chapter uh, 20 that Sarai is actually his half-sister. But it's still a lie. It's still a deception. Anytime you are on a path where you have to start to lie to accomplish what it is that, that we're trying to do, we either know that we are outside of God's will in this situation or we're no longer trusting Him in it. God does not need our lies in order to move His plan forward. This thing, all of the wheels are falling off the cart at this point. Uh, but He doesn't stop. And so it was when Abram came into Egypt, sure enough, uh, the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. And the princes of Pharaoh, oh no, we've gone to the top now. They take notice of her. They recommend her to Pharaoh. And so uh, Sarai was taken uh, to Pharaoh's house. And this would have never happened without an agreement occurring between Abram, the brother, and Pharaoh. So he starts to receive livestock and all here in verse 16, which means he made an agreement with, with Pharaoh, and, uh, and, and, and uh, this is something he can't get out of. He is locked into something. Only God can get this woman out of this situation. And uh, so this thing is a mess. Now here's the problem. It's bad enough that a man, a husband, has sold his wife into another man's harem. Is that bad? Ladies, is that a bad, would that disappoint you a little bit? Okay. All right. But the problem here in this thing that makes it even worse is he is completely jeopardizing the plan of God through Abraham and Sarai, and that is to bring a Messiah through them. And uh, so he's, he is risking uh, our history. He's risking the history of the world in, in this numbskull thing that he's doing. But... I mean, on the short end, uh, short term, he was treated very well uh, for uh, Sarah's sake, and he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. He's getting rich by the day in this uh, situation. Uh, and, I mean, all it took is just his wife over there in the other tent, you know, another man's hair, kind of thing like that. And I think, so God has to rise up and defend Sarai in this whole in this whole thing and his plan for our salvation and you notice verse 17 but the Lord thank you that there is a but the Lord in these things he plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai uh, Abram's wife for a lot of trouble into Pharaoh's life and Pharaoh called Abram and said what is this that you have done to me why did you not tell me that she was your wife here is the father of faith being rebuked by a Gentile pagan. <laughs> this is kind of embarrassing. It's right here on the Bible too, on, on things. And so he's getting re rebuked here. And, and somehow the Lord had revealed to Pharaoh, you know, what it is that was happening here in, in the situation. Why did you say she is my sister? Why did you lie? And I might have taken her as my wife. There was no physical relationship between them. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. And so Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. In other words, he said, now get out of my country. And he, and he assigned his military to make sure they did get out of, of his, uh, his property of the land. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Think that that was a fairly quiet trip back to Canaan? <laughs> Just slightly tense, you know, and, and the, um, making the way. I mean, here we got all of this wealth and all. Look at, honey, look at, I mean, is God good how he works all things together? We are so rich now like we've never been and everything, you know. But she looks at it and said, yeah, but what you are willing to do to me to get those riches willing to sell me and, and, and the whole thing as no, no way to, to do uh, on, on things. So we'll pick it up next time in chapter 13. Let's stand together. Thank you for your patience as we went a little long tonight.